Hi everyone, I'm your host and exhibit director at the Buffalo History Museum, Anthony Greco. Now it's been a couple months since our last episode and we hope that you all had a wonderful holiday season. Now in late October, the museum opened its brand new feature exhibit titled Continuum, A History of Erie County. The exhibit features over 250 one-of-a-kind objects spanning thousands of years of our region's history, including everything from a giant mastodon's rib bone to a 1902 Pierce Arrow motorette and so much more. Quite honestly, there's too much to even describe here, so just trust me, bring your family, bring your friends, bring a, a date that you're trying to impress and discover some of our region's greatest stories. Also, did I mention that the museum's admission is pay what you wish? Seriously, pay whatever you want. Pay a dollar, pay five dollars, pay a quarter. Doesn't matter to us. Bring as many people as you want, the more the merrier. All right, now before we get into this episode, I want to let you know that it features some heavier content than many of our other episodes. There are discussions of murder, infidelity, suicide, and other details that some listeners might find difficult. Listener discretion is encouraged. Edwin and Alice Burdick seemed like a perfect couple. They lived with their three daughters in a beautiful home on Buffalo's Ashland Avenue in an affluent West Side neighborhood. The couple was among the city's young elite. Now in her book, Cold Heart, author Kimberly Tilly notes that the Burdicks were part of what was referred to as the Elmwood Set, a group of 20 or so couples known for their money as well as their somewhat carefree or even wild social lives. In fact, even before the winter of 1903, the Burdicks and many of their Elmwood Avenue friends were common names in the newspapers, in the society section where their social lives, parties, and exploits were all well documented for the masses who desperately wanted a glimpse into Buffalo's high society. In 1903, Ed was 40 years old and co-owner of one of the nation's largest envelope manufacturing companies. Alice, like so many women of her social class, didn't work. Rather, she kept the home and took care of the couple's three young daughters, Marion, aged 15, Carol, 13, and Alice, only 10. Alice wasn't alone when it came to taking care of the family and the home. In fact, she often got to take a back seat when it came to household duties. You see, the Burdick's affluence afforded them the luxury of a live-in cook as well as a live-in maid. In addition to the hired help, the family had the assistance of Alice's mother, the recently widowed Mrs. Maria Hull, who also lived in the house and helped with the children. Now on the surface, Ed and Alice seemed like they had it all. They had wealth, social status, and domestic bliss, but 
Behind the facade was a twisted tale of lies, deception, infidelity, and ultimately, tragedy. When their notoriety, their affluence, and their sordid affairs culminated in 1903, the Burdick's tumultuous story became front-page news that captivated a scandal-hungry city. A frigid February wind tore through 101 Ashland Avenue in the early morning hours of February 27th. At 6.45 a.m., shivering, Maggie, the Burdick's cook, stepped out from her third-floor bedroom to see an uncharacteristic sight. The front door was wide open. Now, the Burdicks religiously locked their door every evening, but in the middle of winter, this was an especially odd occurrence. After shutting the door, she entered the kitchen where she noticed that a window was also open. Now, fearing an intruder had been in the home, Maggie went to wake Mr. Burdick, but found that he wasn't in his bedroom. She remembered that she had seen him the night before in the den, embarrassingly enough, in his underwear. She headed downstairs, but hesitated at the door. Not entirely sure why, she found herself too scared to open the door and instead doubled back to Mrs. Hull's bedroom to inform her of the situation. According to later testimony, after learning of the morning's events, Mrs. Hull accompanied Maggie to the den and knocked on the door. Hearing no answer, she pushed it open and hesitantly peered inside. Despite the darkness, she could just make out a pile of pillows and rugs on the Turkish divan. She surmised that buried beneath the cushions was her son-in-law. Now, strangely, before instructing Maggie to phone for help, Mrs. Hull instructed her to finish settling the children for breakfast. It seemed she didn't want the children to suspect anything was amiss. And once finished, Maggie was to use the phone at a nearby drugstore to call the family physician, Dr. Marcy. Diligently, Maggie did just as she was told, and upon reaching the doctor, she indicated that, quote, something was the matter with Mr. Burdick. Once at the house, Dr. Marcy cautiously removed the pile of pillows, and two things became immediately clear. It was definitely at Burdick, and he was definitely dead. He'd been struck in the head by a blunt object, perhaps as many as a dozen times, far more than was necessary to take his life. Dr. Marcy then called city medical examiner Dr. John Howland to establish an official cause and time of death, and then called the police to investigate the crime scene. And a brutal scene it was. Burdick's beaten body lay wrapped and covered on the divan, his skull pulverized. Dressed only in his now bloodied nightclothes, Ed's shirt was pulled up slightly, suggesting somebody had perhaps repositioned his body. And bloody fingerprints on his calves seemed to back that theory. Two fingers on his left hand had also been broken. Defensive wounds, perhaps, a last ditch effort to shield him from his attacker. The room itself offered more questions than answers, really. Papers and letters from Burdick's desk had been strewn across the floor. 
On a table, a small tray of crackers, cheeses, and some tarts lay half-consumed along with a single glass of liquor. The scene seemed to suggest that perhaps Ed had entertained someone that evening. But if so, who? And more importantly, how did the night end in murder? Who harbored enough rage to bludgeon him to death? And why that cold February night? The pursuit of those answers led investigators deep into a tangled web that was the Burdick's turbulent marriage and the cast of high society characters who all had something to hide. The story was more scandalous and at times more unbelievable than the serial romance novellas that were so popular in the Victorian period. The case would ignite a firestorm of sensationalized media coverage that captivated the city and even the country. But in the end, would anyone be brought to justice for the murder of Ed Burdick? As their secrets were spilled across the pages of the newspapers, what had all seemed like the perfect life for Edwin was quickly tarnished when his wife's infidelity came to light. Born Alice Hull, the charming and vivacious young girl was known as Sweet Alice, or Allie. Newspapers described her as being not quite five feet tall and weighing less than 100 pounds. They compared her likeness to that of famed actress Edna Wallace Hopper, later dubbed the Eternal Flapper. One account noted that Alice is just the kind of woman to cause men to turn around on the street and look at her for a second time. Edwin's business prowess and fastidiousness made him extremely successful and his wealth provided Allie with more than a comfortable lifestyle. Allie's playful manner made them a staple in the, quote, Elmwood Avenue smart set, a group of several other younger couples with more money than morals. Edwin and Allie were particularly close to another couple in the set, Arthur and Carrie Pennell. Arthur was a prominent lawyer, and Carrie was an active member of the Daughters of the American Revolution and a patroness of many fashionable social causes. The Pennells and the Burdicks became fast friends. The couples went to parties together, golfed together, and even took vacations together. Well, when Ed could slip away from work, that is. When that became less frequent, Allie was unbothered. She continued to vacation with the Pennells even without her husband. In fact, it was on one of these trips that the group's dynamic changed dramatically. You see, Arthur Pennell had fallen in love with Allie. It was on a trip to New Haven, Connecticut in 1898. Edwin, ever the industrious one, was unable to make it. He simply had too much work to do. In a letter dated September 1900, Pennell, ever the romantic one, wrote to Alice, quote, Yesterday I was at the gateway on the campus grounds, where more than two years ago I drew you to me in the darkness. This place is enshrined to me. It was clear that this was when he had first expressed his true feelings for Alice, or at least it's when the relationship first became physical. 
It was Pennell's flair for the romantic that pried Alice's affections away from her husband. After 18 years of marriage, Alice showed indifference toward the short and mild-mannered Edwin. Arthur, on the other hand, was tall, athletic, handsome, and had a way with words. Their affair began in 1898, but it would be another two and a half years before Edwin caught wind of it. In her book, Kimberly Tilly notes that Ed Burdick was first informed of the affair by none other than Carrie Pennell, Arthur's wife. Following a New Year's Day party at the Burdick home, Carrie approached Ed and told him the news, news which she had actually known for quite some time. She informed Ed that Alice and Arthur had been communicating by letter for quite a while and that they had taken to secretly meeting each other in apartments and hotel rooms all around the city. Now, when Ed confronted his wife about the affair, she was evasive, naturally, changing her story time and time again about the letters. But eventually, he discovered them. They were tucked away in a small tin box that he previously hadn't thought twice about. Disgusted and needing time to think things through, Ed checked into a nearby hotel. After a few days of Allie's pleading and promising, Ed returned, but soon came to the unfortunate conclusion that he could no longer trust his wife. Despite Alice's incessant reassurances that her affair with Arthur was over, the evidence to the contrary was overwhelming. Alice thought she had managed to cover her tracks, but Edwin always had a way of catching on, and occasionally even outsmarting her. She thought their communications were safely stored in a safe deposit box at the bank, but on a hunch, Ed went to the bank and posed as her brother. Sure enough, when he asked for the keys, his worst suspicions were confirmed. He found not only had the affair continued, but their exploits were spelled out in black and white. Furthermore, their letters led Edwin right to one of their little love nests, where he caught her. Though Edwin genuinely did want to save his marriage, any hope of reigniting his wife's affections were long gone. Alice had made her feelings quite clear. She had rather flagrantly removed her wedding ring and replaced it with one given to her by Arthur. The gesture made it abundantly clear. She cared more about Pennell than the father of her own children. Despite divorce being a constant threat during this tumultuous period, Alice didn't believe that Edwin would actually go through with it. In 1903, such a thing would have caused an enormous scandal, even more so for a couple already well-known in the city's society column. She counted on his love for their children and his desire to protect all their reputations. Instead, they spent months separating and reconciling each time, the separation getting a little bit longer and the reconciliation getting shorter. Finally, Edwin decided to file for divorce. The scandal and public ruin could not possibly be worse than the roller coaster his marriage had become. Now, the decision to end the marriage permanently did not sit well with Alice or Arthur, or even Arthur's wife, Carrie, for that matter. For Alice, the reasons for her discontent are clear. The house, the children, the security of having Ed to support her. And for Arthur, the divorce would give his affair with Alice very real and very immediate consequences. 
and for Carrie, quite simply, the divorce would threaten her reputation and her marriage to Arthur, imperfect though it may be. Carrie pleaded with Ed through letters, urging him to reconsider. She even hinted that, should the divorce go through, her often overly dramatic husband might even kill Alice and himself. However, Carrie's pleas fell on deaf ears. Ed remained steadfast in his determination to end his marriage. The court date for his divorce petition was set for early March 1903, after which he would finally be free of his crowded marriage. Only, he would never actually make it to the court date. Someone made sure of that on that cold and snowy February night. Doctors and investigators on the scene immediately speculated as to whether his death was tied to his upcoming divorce proceedings, which begged the question, could such a crime have been committed by a woman? Was a woman even capable of committing such a gruesome act? Historically, women tended to kill in more subtle ways, poisoning, for example. Then again, on the other hand, how'd that infamous rhyme go? Lizzie Borden took an ax? Oh, wait, she was innocent, I forgot. Believe what you will about outdated Victorian gender beliefs, but one thing was certain. Despite being the most obvious suspect, the crushing blows that had been delivered to Ed's skull that cold winter night could not have been committed by Alice. She was over 400 miles away at Atlantic City's Tremor Hotel, where she had taken up a temporary residence several months earlier. Ed had, in fact, thrown her out of the house, forcing her to leave her daughters at home in Buffalo with her father and grandmother. Suicide was also briefly considered as a possibility, citing Ed's despondency over his impending divorce. However, no real credence was ever given to it. The manner and cause of death simply didn't allow for it. Strangely enough, though, when Dr. Howland, the medical examiner, came to inspect the body, family physician Dr. Marcy had presented him with a rather curious request. He asked Howland that, considering the circumstances of the murder and Alice's scandalous behavior, if Ed's death at all looked like a suicide, to please spare the family and rule it just that. After seeing the blatantly bashed-in skull, Howland was naturally troubled by that request, which he flatly denied. As police went about their investigations in the days that followed, newspapers trailed closely behind to satiate their curious readers. Speculation was rampant, and dirty details of Alice, Arthur, and Edwin's lives were turned into headlines. A Buffalo Inquirer article dated February 28, 1903, read with the alliterative flair of a trashy supermarket tabloid. Quote, so intricately is mystery woven into the warp and woof of the cloud that hangs about the atrocious murder of Edwin L. Burdick that no arrests have been made today. But thread by thread and strand by strand, the curtain of the mystery that protects the murderer from the public gaze is being untangled. To get insight into the crime, papers contacted other law enforcement officials across the state to get their take on the matter. On March 4th, the Buffalo Inquirer published telegrams 
sent by chiefs of police from Rochester, Binghamton, Tonawanda, Jamestown, Lockport, and Niagara Falls, each choosing to opine carefully and with proper deference to Buffalo police. The public, which was eagerly following the case, was also trying to help solve it. They flooded District Attorney Coatsworth office with leads and tips about the, quote, Elmwood set. So many leads, in fact, that the DA had his telephone line cut off so that he could focus uninterrupted upon only the most tangible tips. On March 5th, one helpful citizen even offered Coatsworth the use of Leon, his well-trained bloodhound, who was also currently being used in a production at the Buffalo Lyceum Theater. Though the offer was considered, it seems that Leon's assistance was deemed unnecessary. With Alice, the most obvious suspect having a solid alibi, and the possibility of suicide off the table, police turned their attention to Arthur Pennell, about whom rumors of his and Alice's affair had begun to circulate among police. Pennell was naturally a suspect from the start given the embarrassment that Burdick's divorce would cause once the affair became public knowledge. It also didn't help that Ed had named Arthur alongside Alice as a co-respondent on his impending divorce suit. There was simply no way in which his identity or his reputation would have been spared once the case went to court. Close friends of Burdick also pointed to Arthur as the likely culprit. The morning that Ed's body was discovered, Buffalo Police Chief Patrick Cusack questioned Burdick's business partner, Charles Park, whether he knew of anyone who would wish to harm him. Park responded without hesitation, quote, well, Mr. Pennell did. He threatened to kill Burdick when he came into the office. I heard it with my own ears. He added, Pennell wanted him to take his wife back again. And if he didn't, he would kill Ed, Alice, and himself too. Park believed Pennell's threats to be real. Burdick, however, did not. According to Park, Ed had purchased a revolver for protection, though claimed that he didn't believe Pennell's death threats to be anything more than just words. Park also mentioned that Pennell may have even had a key to Ed's home, considering the family's close friendship. The two men were golf buddies after all, both being members at the Red Jacket Golf Club where Ed was serving as president. As it turns out, it was likely a swing from a golf club that ended Ed's life. At least that's what detectives Homeland and Sullivan deduced after studying the crime scene and the clubs in Ed's office. It seemed as though the murder weapon was already in the room, as opposed to being brought in and removed by the perpetrator. They had also concluded that the killer was likely someone Ed knew, as there were no signs of forced entry. Furthermore, the murder seemed to be a crime of passion, rather than one of opportunity given the brutality of the act. Not the typical behavior displayed by, say, a robbery gone wrong, for example. Besides, nothing of value had been taken from the residence. This murder was personal. And whoever it was, had attempted, albeit poorly, to cover their tracks, 
throwing police from the scent by leaving the front door ajar and the kitchen window raised, a ruse investigators saw right through. They noted that in the kitchen, snow had been brushed from the sill of the kitchen window, making it appear as though someone had climbed in or out through it. But outside, in the nearly six feet of piled snow beneath the window, there wasn't a single footprint to be found. So, unless the culprit could fly, they were either welcomed in by someone in the house or they themselves were already inside the house. And with that, the pool of possible suspects was rapidly shrinking. Now, while Alice's extramarital exploits were well-documented, the eye of scrutiny fell upon the deceased himself because Alice had filed a countersuit to Edwin's divorce action. Inside, she had named two women with whom she accused Ed of having affairs. That particular line of inquiry led in the direction of a newly divorced Cleveland socialite and another member of the Elmwood set. Mrs. Helen Warren of Cleveland was a friend of Ed's and was going through her own marital trouble. At the crime scene, a news article mentioning Warren's recent split from her husband fell from Burdick's wallet as police searched his possessions. This, paired with the allegations from Alice's suit, suggested that perhaps Edwin had a particular interest in Helen's case. Another photo found on the scene pointed police in the direction of Mrs. Gertrude Payne, the wife of Dr. Seth Payne, a dentist practicing in Batavia, just 40 miles northeast of Buffalo. Mrs. Payne kept a house in the city as it was more exciting and fashionable than Batavia. Her husband's practice kept him away most of the week and left Gertrude alone and free to do what she pleased. Could Burdick have been having an affair with one or maybe both of these women? Might he have played a role in breaking apart Helen's marriage? Perhaps so. After all, why would a man hold photographs of a woman in his wallet? With Mrs. Payne, the opportunity was certainly there. Multiple sources, including Payne's own husband, admitted that Burdick was known to call upon Gertrude while she was home alone. If there were any romantic gestures between Ed and any married women, that would surely provide a reason and motivation for a scorned husband to seek revenge. But by all accounts, Burdick was not the sort of man to entertain any such notion. Even Dr. Payne himself admitted that, quote, there was nothing romantic between my wife and Eddie Burdick, and you could put that down in your papers in red ink. On the afternoon of Saturday, February 28th, just days after the murder, the undertaker brought Ed's body back to his home. There, as was the tradition, friends and family would gather to pay their respects to Ed and say one final goodbye. Only by five o'clock, few had gathered. To Reverend Levi Powers, who would lead the prayers, this seemed odd and kind of sad. Arrangements for the ceremony, it seems, had been made in haste with little, if any, notification given to friends. 
Aside from his immediate family and a few friends, the home was empty. Early the next morning, his remains would travel to Canastota, New York for burial. The small town nearly 200 miles east of Buffalo was the home of Ed's family and the location of the Burdick family plot. There, he would be laid to rest beside his father and recently deceased sister. Again, few came to say their final goodbyes. Mrs. Hull, in notifying Ed's mother and family of his death, gave them but a few hours' notice, not nearly enough time to spread the word among extended family and friends. According to author Kimberly Tilly, quote, Ed's mother was paralyzed with grief. In just two months, she had lost two of her three children. She had wanted to see her son, but friends of the family had read the newspaper accounts of Ed's violent death and feared what the sight of his mutilated body would do to his mother's failing health. They persuaded her not to have the casket opened. Though Ed was laid to rest, the police were no closer to catching the culprit. With public attention fixed on the case, police felt growing pressure to make an arrest. Just over two weeks after the murder, they held an inquest where members of the Burdick household were brought to testify. The transcripts of the hours of questions were dutifully transcribed and printed as front page news for the ravenous readers. Investigators, along with the public, were most eager to hear from the woman at the center of the drama, Alice Burdick herself. Her hours of testimony would be a painfully detailed post-mortem of her affair with Arthur Pennell. Their love letters were read aloud in court and were printed in full on the front pages of newspapers across the region. The DA asked Alice about all of the many locations and occasions she had met Arthur around the city. All the while, Alice denied memory of the specifics of their relationship and denied that the relationship had taken any physical turn. However, in one dramatic moment, she was asked point blank, did you love Arthur Pennell? To which she replied, yes, in a timid voice, yes, I did love Arthur Pennell. And when asked, did you expect to marry Pennell? Again, she replied, yes. When Alice finished her testimony, investigators turned their attention to those present in the Burdick home on the night of the murder. But as they were all women, there was a healthy degree of skepticism regarding their ability to carry out such a physical and gruesome crime. Furthermore, did any of them even have a compelling enough motive? While they unquestionably had opportunity, means and motive were far from compelling. Well, maybe not entirely. Though Mrs. Hull had never openly disagreed with Ed's decision to throw her daughter out of the house, and even went so far as to say Alice's behavior had been imprudent, her daughter's divorce could have left Mrs. Hull homeless and financially vulnerable in her advanced age. It would have also tarnished her daughter's reputation and potentially impacted her granddaughter's future social standing. However, one could argue that the impact of a murder 
and the subsequent investigation was far more detrimental than any divorce could have been. But Mrs. Hull was an older woman who was in, quote, frail health, according to her physician. Although in 1903, that seemed to be a universal diagnosis for all women over a certain age. The nature of the crime would have required a certain degree of physical strength to carry out. And let's not forget, the body appeared to have been staged post-mortem, arguably an even more physically taxing endeavor than the murder itself. Now, rather than publicly setting their sights on an elderly woman, authorities felt Arthur Pennell had far more compelling reasons to want Burdick dead. He had himself already said as much. Almost immediately, the police began questioning Arthur and having him trailed. When not being hounded by the police, Pennell was swarmed by journalists and reporters who wanted more lurid details of the affair. In his desperation, Pennell sought the services of a private detective agency out of New York City. In his request, he asserted his innocence and felt that police were going to suspect him because of his relationship with the wife of the deceased. He asked for a, quote, good man to be sent to Buffalo to conduct his own investigation, ideally without alerting the Buffalo police to his activity. On the morning of March 11, 1903, that detective arrived in Buffalo to begin working on the case. Unsurprisingly, the headlines of the morning editions of the newspapers that greeted him at the station were about the Burdick murder. Only, the case had taken an unexpected turn. One of the key individuals at the heart of the case, and our leading suspect, Arthur Pennell, was dead. The afternoon before, Pennell had seemed even more anxious than he had been since the murder. He informed his wife, Carrie, that he was going to take their electric automobile for a drive to get some air. Despite the stormy gray skies and pouring rain, Carrie decided to come along. The two drove around the city before stopping at a saloon for whiskey and cigars. Realizing it was getting late, they climbed back into the car and, despite the rain, worked together to lower the detachable top of the car. Soon after, as they rode down Kensington Road, Arthur's cap was swept off his head by the wind. As he stood up to fetch it, the car swerved off the road. The car and its two passengers fell 30 feet into the Jammerthal Quarry. Those on the scene climbed down the steep quarry walls and worked to lift the overturned automobile. Beneath it, they found Arthur dead and Carrie clinging to life. She was rushed to Sister's Hospital, but given just hours to live. She never regained consciousness and was never able to speak with the desperate investigators who had just lost their primary person of interest. Pennell's body was brought to the hospital morgue where the police gave strict instruction that no one was to see the remains. However, a number of his close associates managed to gain entry and confirm that the remains were indeed those of Arthur Pennell. In a last-ditch effort, the police also brought a young telegraph messenger to view the body. The boy had witnessed a man in front of the Burdick home on the night of the murder. Though he did not recognize the individual, 
he and the police believed he would be able to positively identify the individual if seen again. Upon seeing the remains in the morgue, however, the boy immediately identified him as Arthur Pennell, a man he had delivered many telegraphs to, but he was not the man he had seen that night. And with that, any hope of easily solving the Burdick case was gone. Alice learned of the news when the press converged on her home desperate to get a statement from her. Her attorney, Frederick Hartzell, intercepted the journalist at the door and refused to provide comment on the tragedy. He informed the press that, out of concern for Mrs. Burdick's delicate state following her husband's death, he would inform her in the morning. Though to the encamped journalists keeping vigil outside, the flurry of activity inside the house immediately after suggested Alice had already heard the news. She had lost her husband and her lover and her friend all within two weeks and was now the only surviving member of the burdick pennell love triangle. After the initial shock of the Pennell's death, the police and the public were left to speculate as to whether their untimely deaths were, perhaps, the result of suicide. With the investigation tightening around Arthur, did the stress actually break him? By all accounts, his friends, family, and business colleagues seemed to dispel that notion. If anything, they all attested to his penchant for driving recklessly, with several having warned him that he would end up dead if he kept it up. When asked if the stress of the murder investigation had caused his driving to become erratic, one of his neighbors denied the notion. Instead, he assured investigators that Arthur's driving was just as bad as it had ever been. Evidently, Arthur had a bit of a habit of taking corners so fast that onlookers feared his vehicle might roll over. The inquest into the accident further allayed the suicide theory by determining there simply wasn't enough evidence to support it. If anything, the testimony of those called by District Attorney Coatsworth seemed to take the proceedings in contempt. Perhaps it was the fact that his peers were predominantly of the legal profession, but there were several, quote, rumpuses in the courtroom, lawyers bantering back and forth with the judge reprimanding them. At the inquest's close, the presiding judge didn't feel able to make a ruling one way or the other with regard to the suicide allegations. But the testimony of those closest to Pennell seemed to cast the car accident as just that, an accident. To many, the police included, the connection between Arthur Pennell and Edwin Burdick's murder just wasn't strong enough, and his untimely death was not the smoking gun of guilt that so many had hoped it would be. Maybe it really was just a tragic coincidence. Though public interest remained strong in the case, the death of the primary suspect, a lack of new leads, and a chauvinistic refusal to seriously consider any female suspects ultimately led the case to grow cold. Newspapers would periodically resurrect the story to stir public attention, but nothing would ever materialize. The case remained in the public memory, 
and subsequent newspaper stories provided minimal background information on the case that everyone already knew so well. There was even a fictional account of the murder written by Buffalo attorney Albert Hartzell in 1904. Albert was actually the brother of lawyer Frederick Hartzell and a partner in their firm Hartzell & Hartzell, the firm that represented Mrs. Burdick. Many believed that he was privy to information not generally known by the public. They hoped his telling of the story would provide some additional insight. The novel, Alicia, was a work of fiction, but it used the established details of the murder. However, it attempted to paint the relationship between his quote, made-up characters, Alicia Blake and Arthur Pendleton, as purely platonic and the tragic deaths of Arthur and his wife Lottie as premeditated suicide. The widowed Mrs. Burdick seemed to have appreciated his literary efforts to touch up her tarnished reputation. She and her children were, in fact, guests of the author and seemed to support his depiction of the events. Interestingly, though the Burdick case went cold, the battle over Ed's will continued. In 1904, Alice filed an appeal in the contest over her husband's estate. Unsurprisingly, shortly after kicking Alice out of the house for the final time in December of 1902, Ed drew up a new will. He wrote his wife out of it and instead divided the vast majority of his estate between his three daughters as equal heirs. Either out of kindness or maybe forgetfulness, he left his wife as the beneficiary of one of his large life insurance policies, meaning that she wasn't completely cut off it seems likely it was the latter, though, because in the will he named two of his close friends, Charles Park and Risley Tucker, as guardians of his daughters with three additional colleagues serving as co-trustees of their individual estates. This was, in fact, the source of Alice's case. She believed such an arrangement undercut her rights as a mother. In the end, it was determined that the deceased could not give away guardianship of his children so long as their mother was alive and fit to care for them. The court named the widow Alice as the guardian general of the children and forced the executors of her deceased husband's estate to turn over more than $32,000, over $1 million today, for Alice to manage on her children's behalf. In the years that followed the murder, Alice, the Burdick children, and her mother remained at the home on Ashland Avenue. Marion Burdick, the eldest of the daughters, was even married in the home in 1909 with her two sisters serving as bridesmaids. Despite the almost unfathomable proximity to the location of her father's brutal murder, there was no mention of the tragedy in any of the media coverage of the event. Sadly, Marion's joy was short-lived, and the tragedy that followed the Burdick's children struck again. She passed away at age 24 in 1911, leaving behind a young daughter, her younger sisters, and her mother. The other Burdick daughters grew up gracing the society pages of Buffalo newspapers. Caroline married in 1922 and Alice in 1923. Alice remained Mrs. Alice Burdick for the remainder of her life and never remarried. Though she continued to be a feature of the society columns, her outward behavior was far more restrained 
than her earlier imprudence. It's unlikely that we'll ever know for certain who was responsible for Edwin Burdick's murder. Sadly, like in so many other cold cases, it seems that the evidence has slipped just beyond our reach and the witnesses have all passed on. All we're left with is intrigue and speculation into a long since closed window into Western New York lore. Today's story was produced, edited, and co-written by me, Anthony Greco, along with local historian, Lindsay Lauren Visser. If you're interested in learning more about the Burdick murder, there's a wonderfully written book by author Kimberly Tilly titled Cold Heart, which I promise you won't want to put down. Her book, along with numerous newspaper articles of the day, served as sources for today's episode. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back with another great story very soon, so stay warm and take care. The Buffalo History Museum podcast is sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. The museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul, and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by MNT Bank and from our donors, members, and friends. <laughs>